What the world needs now is... If you gave people long enough to think about that, I reckon almost everyone would probably finish that thought with the same word. And not just because they know the song, but in our collective cultural mindset, that's how we see the answer to the great problems of the world. What the world needs now is love. But I want to deconstruct that idea today. Can we actually continue to believe such a simple thing as that? Because if the answer is as simple as love, then how can we actually make sense of the world having so many problems in the first place? Are the haters outnumbering the lovers in this world? I don't think that can be right, because I'm pretty sure that most of the world would strongly identify as being part of the loving solution. So is hate just too powerful for love then, for the world to be in the state it's in? Again, pretty sure nobody would say that either. Love surely trumps hate. So then what other option is there? If almost everyone identifies as loving, and love is stronger than hate, then why is the world falling apart? Why does the world really need love? The passage in front of us in Philippians 2 asks this radical question. Could it be that we're just doing love wrong? We all talk a good love talk, but are we going about it the right way? What even is love? I mean, we can all dissect life easily enough to know that love is at the heart of what's needed, but what's at the heart of love? Let's deconstruct love then, according to the Bible here in Philippians 2. In verse 1, we read this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is the way we pursue life together. There's a unity here in this instruction, a unity and a harmony as the church of God. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of a loving, peaceful relationship between believers in community. And I don't think I need to persuade you that this is how Christians should live together. We instinctively know this call is true and good and right for us as God's people, that we should have the same mind and the same love together. The only question is, why is it so hard to actually do? It's easy enough to start out like this, I guess, but it's very hard to maintain because life is messy and broken. And if messy and broken people are going to hang out together and share life for long enough and and deeply enough, then the picture here in this verse becomes very hard to maintain. And it can get way out of shape real quick. And then what? Well, love, obviously, the world would say. But this text goes deeper than that little word that we like so much. Here we get a peek into the technical, the mechanical, the the nuts and bolts about what love actually is. What love really looks like in action. And here's what it comes down to. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These things read so well, but they are much more challenging than they might at first sound. Look closely at this text and see how this calls you into question. Do nothing from selfish ambition. In humility, count others as more significant than you are. Look primarily to the interests of others. This is what love looks like in action. It is humble. It is other person-centered. It is not self-seeking, but considers the other person as more significant. More significant. If I am to love someone, I am to seek their good and not mine. It doesn't say here that we should do what we can for other people up to a point or within reason or only so far as my comfort or status or security is upheld. No, it counts the other person's value as more significant than my value. That is humility, of course. And the golden instruction in this passage is not about defending me or what I stand for or my rights or rightness, but rather allowing all those things of me my status or pride or fair entitlement or whatever else, letting all of that about me be set aside for the sake and the good of the other. I tell you, this is a hard teaching. But the Bible wants to rewire us and the way we think and live from our default way of self-centered living to to this way of other person-centered love. Because in actual fact, only other person-centered love is love. Jesus taught us this. Whether it's here in this text or in Exodus or Deuteronomy or John or all through the Bible, Jesus taught that we should love others. And he put it to us quite crisply, for example, in, in Matthew 22, where we read this story. In Matthew 22, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He was asked for the greatest one, but he had to give two because that second one was also crucial to everything. Love the Lord with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. But we fall well short of that, don't we? Loving our neighbor just the same as we love ourselves. I mean, we don't even really think deeply enough on that to understand how hard it is. And, and if we do think deeply enough on it, then we, we realize that it, that it is hard and we, and we figure it's, it's too hard. And so we just give up altogether and, and end up doing nothing. And especially when things have already gone pear-shaped in the relationship. 
This passage in Philippians today that we're looking at again shows us that this is the way we must pursue. And it tells us that we can do this and we must seek after this because, you know, there is comfort from love and affection and sympathy, verse 1. There is encouragement in Christ now and participation in the Spirit of God now for those who believe. Paul only asks if on these things in verse 1 to to bring us into the necessity of the response. This mindset must be ours if we are in Christ Jesus, verse 5. And on the back of the first half of this series we're in, uh, where we've been reflecting in the last few weeks on everything we have as being given to us and paid for us by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, is. It's actually a no-brainer that we should now be utterly humble in our response. Humble above all things else. If only we have what we have received, then how can we see ourselves as higher or more important or better than anyone else? All of us are only in God's church because of his grace to us in Jesus Christ. That gospel is, by its definition and very nature, humbling isn't it it's humbling to everyone who receives it so how can we not live now in all humility with one another if we keep bringing ourselves back to the gospel we keep bringing ourselves back to humility Anyway, I want to suggest, uh, in case you haven't gathered, that love is not working in the world right now. And this text asks an obvious question. Is that because there's no humility at the heart of that love? Social media paints our reality in hypercolor to make the problem easy to see. It looks something like this. Somebody says, I think X, Y, Z. Immediately, someone pushes back on the basis of A, B, C. And then they both get pasted. You know, it's actually C, Z and E, somebody says. And things only go downhill from there and rapidly so most of the time. It doesn't matter what the topic is that we're talking about. That's how this rolls. The need to mark out our position and then fight and defend that position is primal. And everyone's quick to say, look, it's got to be something to do with that medium. <laughs> because we aren't like that in real life. At the bus stop or the supermarket or whatnot. We're nothing like that in real life. Although perhaps we actually are like that. But we just have such well-tuned social customs and conventions that have taught us all to mask things so much better in real life and just get on with what we're doing. Uh, and people may be quiet as they go about their business, but... Aren't they still self-seeking and self-interested when they're at the shops or the bus stop? I mean, we've got to get done what we, what we went there to do, don't get me wrong, at the bus stop or the shop. We've got to do what we came to do. But is anyone really looking out, intentionally or thoughtfully looking out for the interests of others? Is that the way anyone is wired? But clearly too, love still needs fine-tuning in the church of God. And hence this letter. And it is about the church, this text, to which Christians belong in community together. A lot of people don't get that anymore. But to belong to Jesus 
is to belong to his church. A community that he is growing and shaping for his glory. You cannot do any of the things in this text, or most of what the Bible calls us to, without relationship with other believers. Think for a moment about the end point of all this, where the church is headed to. The kind of pictures that the Bible gives us of heaven are of thousands of thousands gathered around the throne of God or of a huge banquet hall filled with all kinds of people. And we could safely assume that all those people there in those heavenly pictures in the Bible will know and love each other. But I'm not sure that's how most modern Christians would instinctively think of heaven as a community of people who know and love each other, all enjoying God together. A modern idea, and especially a Western idea of heaven, is of me, and perhaps a few people I like on a private little cloud, or a tropical island with one or maybe two deck chairs. And so too, back in the here and now, the modern view of the Christian hope and life is very private. You see, in our modern world, the I reigns supreme. And I think of my faith just in terms of where I personally sit, with little thought beyond me of of what else Jesus is doing in his church more broadly. And so the modern believer uh, says things like this. I believe in Jesus in my own heart. Uh, Yes, I do, of course. Uh, Look, I just try to follow his principles in my life. That's what it means to me. It's my personal faith. It's how how I understand Jesus' call to me. But I don't see why we need to go to church. I mean, I don't think Jesus wants us to cling on to old traditions like that. He he was kind of against that stuff. Uh, What matters is that I trust him and I know that he forgives me. I do believe in Jesus. Look, I used to go to church, but I just wasn't getting fed or feeling like it was doing anything for my growth anymore. You know what I mean? Well, they started asking for my money or my time or my commitment. I don't know. I reckon they overstepped the mark. It was just getting way too demanding for for what I was needing at that point in my life. I, me... My, that's the way our world is wired. That's what, why we say things like that and think like that, because that's the way our world is wired. But here's a good news flash. Jesus saves sinners, plural, into his church and into relationship, therefore, with other sinners. Not just relationship with him, but relationship with one another. And yes, that is in the Bible. I know what you're thinking. It is in the Bible, and in fact, it's all through the Bible, where most of the time, as it happens, the New Testament letters like this one here in Philippians are addressing the plural you as Jesus' church collectively. I mean, just think about it, and you'll see for yourself. (laughs) How else can we do all the, the one another's that Jesus calls you to? without others? How can we love one another, serve one another, 
honor one another, meet with one another, greet one another, encourage one another, build up one another, teach one another and correct one another, exhort one another, stir up one another, pray for one another, confess to one another, rejoice with one another, do good to one another, show hospitality to one another, be at peace with one another, comfort one another, and so on and so on. How can we do these things that Jesus calls us to in these scriptures without being with one another as Jesus' church? And how do we do any of these things or, or even have that relationship with one another without humility? Humility that we see in this text here today as to how we live together as God's people in our modern culture where the individual reigns supreme, perhaps we've heard of part one of Jesus' answer on the most important commandment, love the Lord, but switched off before letting him get on to his part two, that we should love one another as ourselves. As our self. Those are big words tacked on to the end of that Jesus. <laughs> are you sure? As our Self. How do we love one another like that? Well, there's, there's two ingredients here. Uh, we need the relationship for one. I mean, there has to be others. And then as soon as there is someone else involved, we then need humility. We love one another in all humility. Just as we ourselves have been loved in all humility, by Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this here in Philippians 2 shows us what that love looked like as the one who cast all the stars into space, became as one of us, so that he could lay down his life for us to absorb the penalty for our rebellion against him. So many levels there in those few short verses of Jesus lowering, setting aside his rightful status to lift us up. How many notches are we prepared to drop for one another. Humility is not about defending or insisting on our, our own right or status. Not in any way, shape or form. On the contrary, it's all about setting all of that aside. Letting all that go and setting all that aside about us so that we can treat others as more significant than we see ourselves. I mean, if God can do that for us, 
surely we can do likewise for each other. So this is the way of love. This is the way of relationship in Jesus' church, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Because this was his way for us. So the beautiful irony in this hard teaching is that because of this love that Jesus has for us, born out of such unfathomable humility on his part, there is now, therefore, encouragement in Christ, as verse 1 puts it. If Jesus didn't humble himself like that, then we wouldn't have this Christian faith or or hope in anything. But he did humble himself. There is participation in the Spirit of God now because, and only because, Jesus so humbled himself for us. There is comfort in love and affection and sympathy for his people. And so this way we read of here has indeed been opened up to us to, to pursue together by the humility of Christ for us. And it's ours to pursue together in that kind of humility that Christ showed for us. So we must be of one mind as his people, in the same kind of love that he showed us, a humble love, counting others as more significant than ourselves, as even he did for us. But how urgently do we desire this kind of thing, this way of life together as God's people, (laughs) How much a priority do we make pursuing this? And especially when things aren't lining up with the way I think they should be. Let me ask you something. Of all the ways that you might become more like Jesus, think of everything about Jesus that you love and and, and just think of all the ways that he might reshape you to become more like him. Where in your mind does having his humility sit on that list? How much would you love to have Jesus' humility? How often do you decide to deny yourself and, and give up any entitlements or status you might feel to lift someone else up? See, if we zoom back out again, we can say that what the world really needs now is humility. Christ-like, other-person-centered humility. And it has to start with us in Jesus' church. And yet one day, here's another good news flash from this text, one day everyone will be humbled. Everyone will be humbled before our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself so much for us. Therefore God, verse 9, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where all this is headed. So let's continue in this way of humility that he gave us, even now. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, as usual, for this text. We have the privilege of opening today. And this is a very hard teaching, Father. And yet we know that it's true. 
Help us to desire this kind of humility that Jesus showed for us and help us, Father, to find it so that we can love one another in this church that you've called us into and so that as a church we can show your love to the world. May everyone come in humility and bow their knees with us before Jesus Christ our Lord to your glory forever and ever. Amen.